Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello Australia, welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James, I'm one of the co-hosts of My Millennial Money. John Pigeon, who also hosts the show, he's on leave at the moment. He's with his family scooting across New South Wales in their caravan. Now, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. We've always got new listeners, so I I always want to just pause and welcome you. So if you're an older listener and you've been here a while, thanks for still listening. But of course, if this is your first time and you stumbled across us, hello. And also, because this episode is on expats, a particular hello if you are listening to My Millennial Money from anywhere else in the world. We've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people all around the world listening, and I just want to say thank you, and I hope that this little Bogan Aussie accent can give you a bit of comfort. If you are feeling a bit homesick or if you couldn't get home with the COVID stuff, uh, you've certainly got a home with My Millennial Money and I want to make it as nice as possible for you to reflect on your money and get that Aussie vibe back in your life. So thank you for listening. And if it is your first episode, absolutely welcome. Uh, we hang out on Instagram at My Millennial Money, or you can jump in the Facebook group and have a lot of fun there. We are developing another system in the background that will be a little bit better and more intentional than Facebook, but we'll let you know as soon as that comes. But if you do want to support the show, there's a number of ways you can do that. You can head to sortyourmoneyout.com, click shop. We've got a bit of crap there that you can purchase. We've got some merch. We've got some of the journals. Uh, We've got my personal financial plan, which is just the little book of hidden things that I do with my own money, how I set up everything. Uh, You can purchase that. That's a way to support the show also. But ultimately, thank you so much for listening. I recorded this episode with James Ridley uh, from Atlas Wealth when I was on the Gold Coast a couple of weeks back. And we sent a lot of people to James and his team because they specialize with Aussie expats. Now, this episode, it will be valuable if you've already moved overseas and you're living there or if it's a plan of yours once COVID settles to move overseas in the coming years, you'll really pick up some things that you need to consider. And we answer a lot of questions from people in the Facebook group. So again, thank you so much for listening. I do not take it for granted that you are listening today. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the chat. James, g'day, how are you? G'day, Glenn. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. No worries. We're going to have a banging episode. Talk to us about Atlas Wealth. Yeah, sure. So, I suppose Atlas Wealth uh, Management, we're probably the only financial planning firm, wealth management firm, that purely focuses on helping and assisting Australian expats. 
Uh, so I suppose what is an Australian expat? It's typically usually, you know, an Aussie citizen residing and working overseas. You know, some of our clients are, I suppose, overseas expats looking to come into Australia. Uh, but essentially, we, you know, assess their situation and help them plan for their time overseas in a tax-efficient way. And usually there's there's a lot of sort of tax curveballs that they face while over there. There's just so much convoluted information out on the internet about assessing your own situation, what to do, you know, things like superannuation, property, getting a loan, insurance, uh, even just financial coaching to a degree. Mm-hmm. So we're about to answer all your questions. I've got a question I'm going to ask James off the bat. It's not in your list. He's not prepared. Are you ready to have some fun, James? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, James, what do you think the biggest thing is that people maybe don't consider when they move overseas indefinitely? Yeah, really good question and a a, a tough one to be honest. But one of the major challenges that we see with expats is they don't take into consideration the change on their assets back in Australia when it comes to tax. And that relates to capital gains tax, losing out on some concessions as as an example, the main residence exemption, that's abolished now for Australian expats. Okay, so just before we move on, what is the main residence exemption and when was it abolished? Why was it abolished? How was it abolished? Who abolished it? Oh, you know what I mean? Like just give us some context there. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's just one of those things, an example of something that expats miss out on now. But right now, if we're a normal Australian tax resident living in Australia, we're living in a property that we own and then we move overseas, we rent it out. Normally, if we rent it out, we're still in Australia, we can rent out that property for up to six years. No capital gains tax accumulates on it, assuming we don't buy another property and then we can sell it and it's a tax-free transaction. But back in December 2019, the government removed that exemption. So now it means that if you sell that property and you're overseas and you're a non-resident, you pay capital gains tax all the way back until you first purchase the property. So very damaging. And you pay tax at non-resident tax rates. So if you're unsure of what the, the tax rates are, we don't have a tax-free threshold. Our first tax tier is up to 90000 at 30 to 2.5%. Then it tears up again to 37% and then 45% after mm. each 90000 So what I'm hearing from that, like uh, there's people that asked in the group and even Valentine Parrott, she asked, I'm hoping to be an expat in the future. Uh, so I wonder how would it work if I own an investment property in Australia uh, and she's a resident for tax purposes elsewhere. So her tax resident question aside, for those who are thinking of being an expat, it's pick up the phone and have a chat with your team um, and you've got advisors all around the world <laughs> yeah. um, just because you've got to plan this thing correctly or it could cost you thousands Absolutely. if you're already a property owner. Absolutely. Yeah. The um, biggest, uh, I suppose, annoying issue that I've constantly face is a lot of uh, expats that are lucky enough to be employed by, you know, those large companies, especially, you know, the conglomerates, Facebook, Amazons, they're lucky enough to get the big four accounting firm look after them when they first head overseas. But unfortunately, they get given a, a one to three page memo saying, listen, you're heading over to the US. These are your standard federal tax rates. You're likely to become a non-resident. That's it. Mm. And then you know, they they start sort of playing chase up over the next three, four, five years, finding out everything else because they're a non-resident. And then by then it's too late. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So the property ownership is an issue, particularly 
if you are thinking we might sell it in a couple of years once we settle. So it could be worth selling before you go. It could be, but I mean... But it could not as well. Exactly right. Yeah. You've got to remember that, and you know this better than anyone, Glenn, that property, it's that one asset class that allows us to leverage and gear. You know, we, we can't usually do that when we're a non-resident if we're owning shares. So I'm not going to say it's it's not an investment that we should have exposure to, but it's being mindful of those changes mm. so you can plan ahead. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So that's the one of the biggest tips and tricks that you see. Talk to us just generally speaking. I've had a little bit of experience with clients in the UK and there's a double tax treaty. Using the UK as an example, what does that mean for tax if somebody moves to the UK and works from the UK and is employed by a company in the UK? What does that mean uh, in terms of tax for their income and if they've got an investment property in Australia? Yeah, good question. So, DTAs usually just govern, obviously, the difference in tax codes and they allow for a foreign tax credit on the other, I suppose, contracting state. And that's usually how they refer to it mm. in the DTAs, a very dry reading. And the DTA stands for? Double Taxation Agreement. Excellent. So, I suppose in this scenario, you know, I've got an investment property, it's rented, let's say it's it's uh, positively geared on paper from a tax point of view. So, that means it's producing $10,000 as net income. So, that means as a non-resident in Australia we're paying 32.5% tax on that. So quickly, 3250 Because of the DTA, the UK or the HMRC, mm. they'll acknowledge that tax credit. So ideally, you're not paying additional tax in the UK on that rental property income. But the UK is a funny one that you've just picked mm. because the UK has two different tax systems over there where you have the pay-as-you-earn system where essentially, as you go, everything's accounted for. So at the end of the financial year, 30th of March, you don't actually need to lodge a UK tax return. They also then have the remittance basins. For expats that are only going to be in the UK for a short-term period and they have a lot of investments back in Australia, the remittance is actually the most cost-efficient or tax-efficient because it means you don't need to declare any of your foreign income. You only have to pay tax on your UK income. The trade-off, however, is you don't have a tax-free threshold in the UK. Right, right. So again, it is that... Um advice piece before you move if you're going to start earning some decent coin offshore. And where are some of the countries that you've got clients in? Yeah, great question. So right now, we're in 30 countries. Uh, Geez, you've bloody guaranteed a uh, tax-efficient holiday, haven't you? You bloody (laughs) bastard. (laughs) Oh, oh, it should be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) And you you can say no comment. Listen, yeah, no comment. Why do you think Brett's over in Dubai now? Yeah, and (laughs) when you see Brett, tell him I said hi. Yeah, I will. So Brett's a, um, uh, he founded Atlas Wealth and had lots of clients in the Middle East and he's taken his family over there and having a desert holiday. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Everyone over there usually calls it the sand pit. (laughs) Yeah, wow, wow. Um, of, uh, I'm blanking on the question. Yeah, so 30, um, 30, 30 countries, countries so, yeah. So I suppose my main focus is usually APAC, Asia-Pacific region. So my main countries would be, you know, United States. I do have clients in the UK. I actually also have clients in the Middle East, Middle East so Bahrain, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, the United States, Singapore, Vietnam, um, uh, Thailand, uh, Hong Kong, China, South Korea, um, Moldova. 
actually had to Google that one when they came on board. Yeah. Um, so Middle Middle East, uh, sorry, Eastern Europe. Wow. Ireland as well. Um, but a, a lot of big common expat hubs for Aussies is the UK, the US, Singapore. Singapore, is yeah. Huge, yeah. yeah. Hong Kong as well. Uh, and in terms of types of professions or expats, you know, very wide. A lot of teachers, surprisingly, mm. actually. Uh, it's one of the most common industries for expats overseas. Or into the international schools or exactly local right schools? yeah You're exactly right they love westerners yeah um, maybe just to the the degree of education but they love westerners um, in the US uh, a lot of people working in sort of the tech bubble um, and then you know it can be people working in oil and gas down in mm. Texas um, and then just straightforward people that you know are self-employed you know they have a, a simple PTY LTD which is a proprietary company that they're a sole trader in another country doing cool things. Mm. Mm. Uh, so we might move on to some questions now, if you'd like. Um, James, there's a question here from Glenn James asking for a friend who runs a podcast business. Is there a way to set up his business in a tax-free haven? What a wonderful question. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a trap. Um, listen, I'm, I'm, I want to say no comment. Yeah. Um, however, clever Australians have done things where they might have based uh, and set up Hong Kong companies. Interesting. It's it's not something obviously we do, but yeah. I've come across stories where people will set up an, a local entity in Singapore or Hong Kong. They'll manage their whole business out of there and then all taxes being paid through that system over there and they'll just pay themselves a, a simple wage mm. um, and, and keep a lot of the assets offshore in the company's name. Uh, I won't go into that too much because obviously I'm not an expert in that area, but there's ways you can mitigate and reduce. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was just being a, a bit of a dickhead with a smart-ass question, but um, I'm intrigued, but it also sounds too hard for me. This is an interesting one. Emma Hall asks, should we keep contributing to Australia investment accounts or find an overseas broker? Yeah, okay. I, I can go into this one a little bit. I, I think firstly... With the investment account, you know, if it's a, an account with ETFs in it, shares, one thing which as a non-resident you should consider before leaving, if you haven't already, is what's called deemed disposal because direct shares are actually a rather tax-efficient asset class to invest in when you're an expat. And to discuss deemed disposal a little bit more, when you first are heading overseas, if you're already holding shares and you have the intention to be overseas for, say, three, five, seven, ten years, whatever it might be, because shares are treated as non-taxable Australian property, it means that the capital growth for the period that you hold them as a non-resident can be completely tax-exempt by the ATO because you're not a resident here and that's that asset class, that's the way it's treated. The only other little things you need to be mindful of is that the platforms are withholding their correct rate of tax based on that double taxation agreement with mm -hmm. that country. If you haven't opted into deemed disposal, then the shares themselves are still taxable by the ATO from a capital gains point of view. So... That's part one. There are no issues with you sending money back to Australia and investing in, say, shares, paying down debt, uh, personal loans, property. You're not going to be hamstrung by the ATO or anything like that. It all starts from just your original tax status. You know, when you left Australia, did you declare yourself as a non-resident? If you have, that's great. Now, how does that look on your other tax set or your, your other asset classes? Mm. So do you guys... Um work closely with accountants or are you accountants in-house as well? Yeah, great question. We aren't accountants in-house. I used to be an accountant. Oh, but, um, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
career change. Um, <laughs> Hello to all the accountants it, listening. It, I love you. Oh, boy. Um, no, no. We work with a lot of great accountants. We have some great ties in the US and the UK as well mm-hmm. uh, in Singapore. So um, I suppose they make up our center of influence where if we have an issue or someone needs a bit of a, uh, I suppose, they need help with a specific item, I can just do a Passover and, and you know, Bradley or, mm. or Glenn or who it might be will help so, them out. So this is fascinating. So with some of your expat clients, if they've got investment accounts in Australia, are you doing like model uh, direct equity portfolios a lot of the time or like what are type of some of the type of portfolios that you're doing? Yeah, it, it'll range. I mean... I suppose we do do direct equity uh, model portfolios, as you put it, um, depending on, I suppose, a, a client's starting balance. You know, my preference, if they're starting a little bit smaller, might be just to use a few ETFs to kickstart, yeah. you know, and then maybe doing an ongoing sort of contribution plan or savings plan and growing that asset. Mm. Outside of that, we still, you know, we're lucky enough that through the platforms we use, we can access direct equities, especially on other exchanges as well, such mm. as the NASDAQ and those sort of things. So yes, you know, when we are investing clients, if they just want to set up an investment account, depending on sort of their type of investor profile, growth, balance, whatever it might be, you know, that'll obviously dictate how we're going to invest them and, you know, the Mm. the model that they'll go in. Yeah, right. So following on uh, to Emma's question, I think it really depends on the intent and how long you're going to spend overseas. Uh, You know, if you're like, oh, we're thinking of going over for a year or two years, Sure, you might just go, it's easy just to build wealth back in Australia. We know it's short term. Uh, can you speak to anything else that Emma needs to consider? Yeah, no, I can. So with using an overseas broker, you know, I don't really have any negatives to say about it. However, it just comes to a point when you're exiting that country, are you going to continue holding those shares on that overseas broker? Is that going to present difficulties for you to sell it down when you're out of there? If you have to sell it down before you exit, that means you're realising a capital gain in that jurisdiction. So you'd have to pay capital gains tax to that local taxation authority. A great example is the IRS in the US. You know, That's the ATO equivalent over there. And when you're leaving and if you're selling down a portfolio, you're going to be paying capital gains tax to the IRS. Whereas if you didn't crystallise any capital gains on shares that you might have had back in Australia, you're not presenting an opportunity for them to tax you on it either. Mm. Is there a, uh, a tax agreement with the US like there is the UK? There certainly is. Uh, It's very old though. It was formed back in uh, 1983. So unfortunately, there isn't a lot of carve outs for things like superannuation accounts, uh, their retirement accounts as well. So when you're coming back to the US, you really do need to be mindful of the difference in the tax codes because a lot of the time people will leave their US retirement accounts over there because you can't just straightforward and withdraw them because if you're in Australia, it'll be a taxable event as well. Mm -hmm. Question here from Laura. I'm a dual citizen of Australian and US. I've never lived in the US nor had a social security card and worked in Australia for years. Do I have to report my Australian salary to the IRS each year? If so, how would she approach that? Yeah, that's a really good question because there are a lot of, um, I suppose, accidental Americans where you're a US citizen by birth, but you've never lived there. You've never earned income there. You might not even have a US passport. This is a really tricky question. So I will tread carefully. Mm. I suppose if the IRS and you don't have a social security number or anything like that, you're actually best staying out of the system. When you're traveling, don't use, if you have a US passport, don't use it because you don't want to get on the IRS's radar to start reporting your worldwide income, your worldwide assets. There are a lot of accidental Americans, depending on your age, you can relinquish your US citizenship as well if you're an Australian citizen, which you are a dual. Um, So if you can, absolutely 
I wouldn't be reporting anything because it can sometimes get to the point where you might be a lot later in life, you know, it might be mid-30s or late 40s, and then, you, you know, something might happen, an event might happen where you need to start reporting it, and then that's when the IRS can hit you up for all these previous non-lodgements because you put yourself in the tax system. So you're better off just, you know, pretty much putting your US passport in a drawer, never using it and, and probably staying away from it. If you want to be absolutely sure, there's some great uh, US accountants can make that can make sure you're not in the system either, as well as an immigration lawyer that can double check as well. Mm. And she's just got one follow-up question to that. You know, are there any advantages of being a dual citizen? And I, like just from me being a dude who's not in this, you know, expat world, I would only think it is, well, if you ever wanted to present or if you ever had an opportunity present itself and you wanted to live in that country, well, it's going to be very easy to just slip right in. Yeah, I think probably the best example is right now, mm. COVID. Uh, last year, being able to enter and exit uh, the US as well as Australia, maybe for work reasons, it's probably one of the major advantages. Outside of that, uh, the only other thing I can think of long term was if you were paying into Social Security for more than 10 years, it's actually a pretty good benefit when you turn 67 just because it's not assets tested. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably one thing that they have over us. But outside of that, the only benefit is being able to enter and exit and stay in the country for work without having to worry about visas or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that's honestly the only benefit I can think of. Unfortunately, the IRS, it is the worst taxation authority in the world when it comes to annual reporting, information returns, foreign bank account reporting. Uh, we honestly wish they would change the rules and be a lot you know, similar to everyone else where... You're only having to declare a lot of things when you're an, a tax resident there compared to a citizen basis. Mm. Question here from Melissa Denkinger. I'm a new expat abroad and I guess I have concerns about tax status and also super. I have a government fund and can't pay into it. Only the government can do that. So let's just cover off a couple of things with super. And I'll hand it to you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and I will say, everyone, James is... Um, sitting here without any notes or anything. He's just having a chat with us and I'm having a really great time because this is a fascinating topic that we don't get to do much and I can imagine that we'll probably be doing an expat episode every uh, eight months or so. <laughs> yeah, whenever there's a legislation change, we should jump on. Yeah, totally. Um, maybe after the budget. Uh, yeah. We'll jump into it for Melissa's question. So, yeah, I mean, new expat, broad, concerns around tax status, super and government funds. So, you're right, um, the government super fund you know, depending on who your employer was, sometimes it can actually be very difficult to pay into it. Um, you can still open up a, a normal retail super fund if you wish to pay contributions into a super fund whilst you're away. That's not an issue. That's not going to impact your tax status. If you had a self-managed super fund, then I'd, I'd say come and have a chat to us. And I'll just jump in there. When you do pay money into your super and you're not a resident for tax purposes, they're after-tax contributions. So they're a non-concessional contribution. Absolutely. And it just means you can't claim that on tax. So, you know, anyone that's living and working and is a tax resident in Australia can put up to $25,000 a year in their super, including the 9.5 super guarantee, claim that on their tax return effectively. Uh, But if you're not a resident for tax, you just put the money in and it's kept in super and it will be growing in a tax-free environment for when you retire and then you've got more money growing tax-free. 
Yeah, and you, you touched on something which is actually a really useful tool up a expat's arsenal if they have a positively geared. Oh, you were about to say up an expat's ass. I know. I'm glad I fleshed it out in a yeah, little bit. Of it. Thank you. So the concessional contributions, you're spot on. You know, if you've got other income in Australia which might be taxed at that thirty two and a half percent rate, and you're not relying on that income for anything, it's just building. Theoretically, you can have one asset, investment property, paying into your retirement asset, being super. And you could claim the tax deduction on that net income going in as long as you're staying within the concessional contribution caps. But I, I didn't think if you're, a, if you're not a resident for tax, you don't claim the concessional contribution. Well, because, it's, because right now the legislation changed you know, a few years ago, if we don't have anyone paying anything into our super, we can offset that net income from the property put it into super, claim that as a personal tax deduction on our non-resident tax return. And the, the reason why you might do that mm. is because rather than paying 32.5% on the rental income as a non-resident, your super is only paying 15%. And you're saving yourself 7.5%. And it's a unique way where one of your assets back in Australia is paying into one of your other assets, a retirement asset, growing tax efficiently because it's within super. Oh, okay. So you're saying, um, you know, if the rental property generated 25 grand a year uh, gross, yes, you would pay some tax on that in the first instance and the net amount put into super and then it's hidden from your 32.5% tax. Exactly right. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Sorry. And then the second point I wanted to pick up uh, for those you know, and there's probably not many listeners who have a self-managed super fund. Uh, the trustees have to be residents for tax purposes. Yeah, you're spot on. So the rule that you're referring to there is central management control. So unfortunately, we do come across the odd self-managed super fund. I've wound down a few over the years. Um, and it's somewhat scary how long they've been overseas and the agent yeah. hasn't picked them up. I know, it's wild, right? Um, but, you know, if you are caught running a non-complying super fund, a self-managed super fund in your non-residence, the ATO can take almost half of your balance and the income in that year that they deem you to be non-complying. Very scary. They give you 12 months to wind it up and then they'll hit you again. So be mindful of that. A lot of expats do unfortunately still have self-managed super funds um, and they're, they're treading a very thin line and it's only a matter of time. Oh, when I was an advisor, like a million years ago, there was a company that was getting cute with setting up a trustee company as a custodian for people who had moved overseas. Like it seemed great. Does that sound familiar? So they could keep the self-managed super fund and there's some type of custodian company? It sounds like you might be referring to like a small APRA fund. They can, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. They, they can convert the SMSF into a small APRA fund. You pay a, a pretty high fee each year for them to act as the trustee. Yeah. There's not too many services like that anymore. A lot of people still, you know, well, not a lot of people, I should say, some people might be forced to do that scenario if they're holding a property which they can't sell. Yeah. And and that's probably way beyond the scope of, um, you know, 98.5% of our listeners. Okay, we'll be right back after this quick break and we'll answer some more of your questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Okay, James, you ready to answer some more questions? Sounds good, Glenn. Let's get into it. So Ashley's got a question, Ashley George. 
living abroad and Hex in Australia. She's also living abroad but has an investment property here. So she's got an investment property in Australia. She's got Hex in Australia. Uh, we'll assume for the sake of this that after her expenses for the investment property, she might have a, a gross income of 20 grand, okay, mm-hmm. before tax and her Hex. How does this work in this situation? So I'll, I'll talk about Hex first and we'll come back to the property. I feel like we've, uh, we've gone through property a fair bit. And mm. The Hex item is pretty important now. They, they changed the uh, legislation on Hex being repayable uh, in 2018, where regardless of where you're residing around the world, whether you're an Australian tax resident or a non-resident, you still do need to do a lodgement with the ATO. A lot of the time expats still forget this and usually it's a percentage of your income to wind down a portion of your debt each year. I suppose, you know, you, you shouldn't panic if you haven't you know, lodged a hex lodgement in a little while because at the end of the day, you lodge anything that you haven't done for the last few years and the ATO just says, okay, this is what's outstanding. We just require a 5 to 10% down payment and then you can put yourself on a bit of a payment plan for that next 12 months and then the next financial year rolls around, then you do it again. So it's not something you should be too concerned about. However, they are a requirement now. You know, you, you should be doing hex lodgements on your worldwide income. The property, that's great. You've got an investment property, as Glenn said, hypothetically 20,000 gross income after tax deductions. Um, so based on that, you would be paying income tax at 32.5% on it. Um, so that part sucks because you're a non-resident, um, but there are ways that you can offset that. But you'd be getting the offsets in the country that you are um, a taxable resident of. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah sweet. Yep. Um, but it just means in Australia, you're still under the hex threshold. So how does the hex threshold work in Australia if you're not a resident? Well, th- this is the thing. And this was the legislation change. Right. It doesn't matter where you are. It's based on your worldwide income. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there's three methods that the ATO can use. Wow, bend me over and spank me sideways. I uh, just saw your eyes light up then. <laughs> A bit of panic maybe. Whoa. Uh, um, so 2018, regardless of where you're residing, you must do a hex lodgement. The threshold has come down to $45,000 uh, roughly. That's an estimate. Mm. But as you can imagine, it hits people pretty hard, especially if they're in those tax-free realms zones when they're making great income and then they're like, oh, hang on. I owe an 11% repayment on my debt and 11% is based on your income, not the not the debt level. So yeah. it is something that does fall due now. Um, it just, if you're unsure, either reach out, get online. If you still have a, a MyGov ATO login, you can actually go on there and you can find out how to do the hex lodgement. And if you're unsure, just uh, jump on, either reach out to myself or Glenn and we can obviously point you in the right way. But yes, unfortunately, it is something that is due every year. When you don't do it, usually you might get a letter from the ATO just saying, hey, we haven't received a hex lodgement yet from you. Please send one through. Mm. That's a huge trap. Huge, yep. So yeah, if you're moving overseas, you've got to do your annual lodgements in Australia. Because if you're earning, you go up to the UK or the US and you're earning 80 grand a year, you're over the threshold and you owe the Australian government money to pay back your hex. Absolutely. And the, the thing that I said before about how there's three different methods you can do the hex lodgement. One method is a simple method where it's just you tell them what your gross wage income was and they base it off that. The other method is picking a standard deduction based on the industry you work in. And the next method is actually like lodging an Australian tax return with all the different tax deductions, you know, claiming things like your mobile phone, internet, which will obviously reduce your net income that would be payable, which would, 
I suppose, calculate the hex repayment. Mm. It, it could be, a, a, James, like as a scenario, like if you are planning to move from Australia for some time and you've got 10 grand of hex, I usually say don't pay hex off, let it kind of happen normally. It, if you've got the cash, it might be a housekeeping thing. Just close it, pay it off before you move. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, one thing you could always look at is just probably the rate of inflation at the time, what might be the expected change in the next year but or two. Okay, so another question. Mm-hmm. If you move overseas and you're living in the UK or the States or Singapore, yep. choose your own adventure, mm-hmm. and you'd be doing tax returns there because you're a tax resident there, do you have to notify the ATO each year of any activity? No. No, you don't. So that's what's somewhat great about the ATO in some respects. If we are a firm non-resident, the ATO does not care about your income. This is under the assumption no hex. Yes. So, yeah, we'll assume no hex. Yeah, no hex. The ATO does not care about your income worldwide each year. It doesn't care about the assets that you build. It's only when you're an Australian tax resident that's when things fall in. So it does mean that if you're strategic, yeah, you can still build wealth back in Australia in the right manner, in a tax efficient manner. But when we're a non-resident, the ATO does not care about your worldwide income, does not care about your worldwide assets that you're accruing. When we come back to Australia, you know, repatriation, take a bit of a review, take stock of your assets, how you're going to squeeze them back into, I suppose, Australian tax legislation or, you know, sending them home as well. How does that all look? But yes. Okay. Another question, and this is just me thinking about chat. So if I'm earning like 70 grand a year in Australia, three years running, tax returns in at all time, the next year you move overseas, there will be a portion of that financial year that you've had income in Australia and income overseas. For that first financial year, do you declare your Australian income to the nation that you're a resident of? Generally not. Um, So you just run two tax returns for that first financial year? Yeah, that's exactly right. So... Firstly, when we leave Australia, there's generally, a, I suppose, a line drawn in the sand at the time in which we become a non-resident. Um, so any Australian sourced income, okay, normally taxed by your normal traditional Australian tax rates, uh, and then any income that you earn overseas, that's no longer taxed. Most accounts will draw that line in the sand at the time in which you go overseas. Probably the biggest issue with our tax legislation is still our, our residency rules are still based on the 1936 Tax Act. Oh, so it's quite new. So it, it's uh, it's ridiculous to be honest. It's just so old school, and it, it doesn't really mesh with a, a global mobile uh, mm. workforce. So they're very old school. So a lot of accounts have to read through the lines or read between the lines, I guess. Um, but yes, most accounts will draw a line in the sand. Mm. So the first fa- financial year overseas, you run two returns essentially. The second year, uh, you'll just run it where you're the tax resident of. Do we have to then tell the ATO, and we're assuming no hex, um, that it's a nil return or you just don't need to do one? Well, generally, most accountants, um, they'll declare you as a non-resident. If you've got no Australian sourced income, there is no need for you to do another lodgement. When you bounce back to Australia, uh, assuming maybe your assets in Australia haven't changed or anything like that, um, it's highly likely that you best sort of speak into an account because they can just jump on the ATO portal and, you know, as Glenn just put it, return not necessary, return not necessary, return not necessary for those financial years. When you do start acquiring assets and you're a non-resident, that's when you need to do little things like updating your bank accounts to reflect that you're an a overseas uh, tax resident. You know, they, they usually ask for what's called your tax identification number, your TIN and the country that you're residing. Mm. That's so they can withhold uh, the required rate of tax. 
based mm. on the, the double taxation gain, which would be you know ten percent usually on the interest income. Same with shares and those sort of things. Mm. Mm. It's so fascinating, so fascinating. So I just want to talk about the UK pension, which is kind of their super-ish thing. Uh, I want to talk about KiwiSaver, uh, which is they're the two main things that I see in the Facebook group. We don't see much about 401ks and Roths and all that in the States. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Then we'll have a quick break and then we'll talk about some repatriation stuff. Yeah, so KiwiSaver, if, uh, if someone comes over, crosses the ditch, what do they do with their KiwiSaver if they're planning to live in Australia permanently? Yeah, yeah, okay. So KiwiSaver, it is part of our Trans-Tasman portability scheme, which means technically you can transfer it into your super fund. It's it's not a, a hard process. It's, you know, it's a case where first you contact your super fund, make sure they do accept KiwiSaver transfers, and then you need to go to your KiwiSaver, the platform or the super funds, the New Zealand super fund, I should say, and ask for a withdrawal statement and a rollover benefit statement. They'll then look at transferring it into your, or you'll provide that stuff to your Australian super fund, and then they can actually bring it across. The only things to still be aware of is just our contribution caps. So uh, right now, our non-concessional after-tax contribution caps is 100,000 per year or bring forward 300,000, um, bring forward rule being the three years. Mm. And then, you know, you can also use the concessional contribution cap to a degree. So are they saying the Kiwi saver, if you're bringing that, they'll they'll count it as a non-concessional contribution? Yeah, exact same with the UK scheme as well, UK pensions. Right. So it's not a case where we can just transfer over, you know, a very large amount. Which is crap because it's just a rollover. I know, I know. It is ridiculous. And a lot of the time when... People go to do these large transfers. Once you max out that non-concessional cap or the bring forward rule, any amount over that amount will actually be assessable within super and it'll be taxed at 15%. Yeah, right. So it can be done. Mm. There's no issues with um, doing it. A lot of the time, you know, New Zealanders bouncing back or Aussies, if they're coming back and they're staying permanently, then yeah, they should look at bringing it across. Um, Most of the time, you know, you can get within the caps or you just have to break it up over a few years. And the UK pension scheme, uh, someone's working over there for a while, they move back to Australia, and we can probably use it as a segue into the repatriation thing. Mm-hmm. They can, that can be transferred into a super fund in Australia? Ooh, it's a... Yeah, because I wanted to ask you about this because there's a scheme, is um, QROPS, is it CROPS? Is that how yeah, it's, yeah, so it stands for Qualified Qualifying Recognised Overseas Pension Scheme. Yes. Now, there are funds that accept... Uh, QROP rollovers? There used to be. So right now there's only one retail super fund option. I think, so there is a mob, I think, down in Sydney or Melbourne. I think they're called IVCM. I actually can't remember. Um, But when it comes to UK pension transfers, the minimum requirement to do so is that you're age 55. Right. Yes. So the, the legislation changed back in 2015 about just being able to transfer them back into an Australian super fund. Right. So these days, in order to bring back, you know, y- y- your pension from the UK, we normally have to have a self-managed super fund. And then the accountant needs to get this registered on the UK's or the HMRC's QROPS list. That's not a hard process, but obviously a pr- the process of setting up a self-managed super fund, yeah, that can be tough. Um, so there isn't an easy portability scheme anymore. Sometimes, you know, obviously rebounds or repats, they'll, 
They'll look at the UK pension and if it's not a very large amount, when they get to the access age, they might look at drawing down an income stream and accounting for you know, the double taxation agreement, paying a little bit of tax or withholding tax to the HMRC and then bringing that amount back to Australia. So unfortunately, there isn't really an easy way to... Uh, mm. Bring it back. I, I was having a, a bit of an email chain this morning with someone that um, reached out to us back in 2019, and they're now retired. And I've passed them on to another firm to sort of set up a um, look at setting up a self-managed super fund because they're lucky enough to have a good-sized pension. But it, it's just not an easy system where you can log online, transfer it across, and you know it's all done. It used to be. Yeah, because when uh, I've and clearly from my like ignorance before, I haven't done this for many years, but. The ones that I brought back to Australia, we would actually set them up in a separate retail fund at the time because there was um, it was cloudy the legislation from the UK that if you even pulled it in with your existing super and paid insurance, for example, you'd be penalised. You're, you're spot on. So, unfortunately, even if you bring the UK pension across and you went through the, the minefield of setting up an SMSF, you still have to report for up to five to 10 years everything going on on that portion to the HMRC because it still needs to meet the definitions for retirement purposes and... Based on their laws. Exactly right. Yeah. And if we breach that rule each, uh, I suppose, UK tax year, there can be a 20% penalty tax that we have to pay back to the HMRC. So unfortunately, it's not an easy way to do it. You still can do it. It's just, um, I suppose, you know, speaking of the right people to obviously set up the, the right self-managed super fund or using that one retail super fund I mentioned. But just, uh, yeah, it's not an easy scheme now where you can just bring it across. It sounds like to me, if, you're, if you've worked in the UK for a while and you've got a UK pension, keep your address up to date and revisit when you retire. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Or it's funny, I mean, sometimes expats, they'll, they'll bounce back to the UK if they've got an okay pension system over there or pension sort of balance. Mm. They might become a non-resident of Australia. They might wind down their UK pension and retire there for a few years and just live off that income. Mm. It's, a, it's a funny, I, I suppose, idea and concept. But, but I mean, that would be more appealing if you had spent a decent chunk of time in the UK working and built that pension up. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. There's a question here about Aussies. Uh, Helen says, any implications for Aussies living in New Zealand and transferring super? So I know with the US, because I've got a friend who moved to the US um, and my mate Nick is about to leave to the US on the 10th of March, uh, which may have already passed by the time we put this episode up. From what I understand, the super pretty much stays in Australia until their preservation age. Yeah, unfortunately, we have probably the most strictest um, retirement legislation when it comes to access and portability. You know, right now, you know, if you wanted to withdraw it, obviously, first is preservation age, and that's 60 now for everyone. You can access it earlier under, you know, financial hardship, those sort of things, but we can't just... you need a new boat through coronavirus. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> tune, tune back into one of Glenn James' other episodes. Yeah. <laughs> and let me tell you, everyone, I did not take my super illegally. Yeah, so uh, I suppose, yeah, there's no sort of system where you can access it early. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head is if you're not an Australian citizen and you've been here on a working visa, you can withdraw it, uh, and that's a, a DASP payment, Departing Australia Permanently, uh, superannuation payment. But depending on the visa you've been on, you can actually get taxed up to 65% on that withdrawal. Ridiculous, mm. but it's determined and governed by the work visa you're on. Okay, so my friend Mel, who's had an episode on this podcast, she's now a citizen of the US. If she denounced her Australian citizenship, 
could she then take her super up? Yeah, technically. Before preservation. Yeah, technically she could. There would still be some sort of exit tax as part of that withdrawal because mm. she's been a citizen. It'd be a lot less. Yeah. Than 65. I want to say it'd be closer to 35. That number's jumping into me for some reason. So she might have to pay about 35%. But mm. So which basically means not worth it. Well, the other thing is because she's in the US, it's going to be a taxable transaction that she'll have to declare to the IRS. Yeah. So it's not worth it. Yeah. And it's not going to be treated favorably at all. Yeah. Yeah. So you've basically stuck with your super until you've reached the Australian preservation age. That's right. Treat it for what it is. It's a retirement asset. You know, build it while you're away if you can. Uh, if you can't, look at other means. James Cooper says, and then we'll quickly have a break, good countries for tax residency if working completely remote, e.g. low tax rate, length of stay per financial year, etc. So he could be a, a podcaster and, mm. you know, it could be a nomad and just float around. Yeah. What, what do you... Well, I mean, you could you could just go with low tax environments. Singapore's a really common one for entrepreneurs um, just because it is low tax. Uh, I think a maximum tax rate of 22% there for um, corporate entities. You can go to the tax-free havens, you know, over the Middle East where it is all tax-free. But the hardest thing is trying to get a visa to stay over there. Mm. Uh, I think sometimes when you show a level of capital in your bank accounts that you're using towards that entity, it's fine. Um, I think... Estonia came out with this entrepreneurial e-residency tax visa a long time ago. It's mainly focused on, a, I think, a lot of cryptocurrency nuts back in the day, but um, it was just so they could set up their their businesses. But I know a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, you know, they base themselves out of Estonia because they get this e-residency card. It means the company only pays a maximum tax rate of 20% when they're a bit of a gypsy hopping around. Yeah. Um, so Which speaks to the actual country itself full of gypsies yeah that's right so um those are some of the main areas other areas would be yeah you could consider hong kong opening up an entity out of hong kong but not residing there because you're not remitting any income through the company into hong kong funnily enough you don't pay any tax on it so mm. there's unique structures in which you can still access i, I will have a add a caveat in there that's not really our realm or no, no, area but you know just think about low tax environments if you want to go to, I suppose, uh, you know, Cayman Islands, those sort of places where they are still tax-free. Mm. Shay says, and it's, a, and it's a good question this, Australian living abroad in Canada, what are pros and cons of not being a resident for tax purposes? Currently not because the tax rate is less here, but uh, she's paid hex back and cut all ties, but worried um, that she's not investing in super. So it goes back to, James, you've got to spend less than you earn and invest for your future and then work out what's the best tax structure to do that. And it could be in Canada, a yeah. system up there. Yeah, well, if, you know, it's a hard question to answer because whenever I have my calls and inquiries, you know, when do you, in, you know, when are you going to come back? How long are you overseas? No one can really answer those questions. Mm. And it's a funny question I like throwing out because I like, I, I like one day meeting the person that's absolutely certain on their plans. But... I guess uh, if you have an intention of bouncing back to Australia at some point, maybe that's where you're going to retire, then yes, in an ad hoc basis, you should be building your assets back here. There are ways you can still do it in a tax efficient way. Uh, we briefly touched on shares before, but that's one asset class. Mm. You know, the pros of that is, yeah, it is technically tax free. You mentioned in that sort of inquiry that not investing in super, you, you still can. You can invest in the local sort of super or retirement schemes over in Canada. A lot of the time when you leave them, you can withdraw them and sometimes it is concessionally taxed only by the Canadian IRD, the ATO equivalent. 
So it, it really just depends. That, that's a hard question mm. because it can just go off into so many different totally. forks. Uh, and she followed up by saying implications of buying a house while overseas if I move back to Australia. Hang on, you said that you've cut all ties um, <laughs> and rented out or sell the property abroad. Uh, is she going to be taxed to death? Um, I would be living in Canada and will be probably returned to Australia within five years, but who knows? So, again, it's all up in the air. Yeah, yeah. I mean, property, unfortunately for property, back in May 2012, they removed what's called the 50% capital gains tax discount concession. So, that concession right now, if we are an ordinary Australian resident, it allows us to buy, say, some shares or an investment property, hold it for more than 12 months, sell it after the 12-month period, and we only have to declare... 50% 50% of the capital gain to the ATO. But as non-residents or expats, you don't get that concession. Hmm. So, James, repatriation, some final thoughts. Uh, someone's been living overseas for a period of time. What are your thoughts that people need to be aware of when they come back to Australia and you know, get repatriated? Yeah, I think before they're coming home, you always need to conduct a bit of a, or take stock of your sort of, your position in terms of, you know, what assets do you have in the current country you're in? If I'm bouncing back to Australia, am I leaving some of those here? How are they going to be taxed? Should I be looking at sending money home to Australia now whilst I'm a non-resident? Because that's not going to be looked at really. Um, So the biggest sort of question that, or I suppose uh, item that comes about is, okay, I'm bouncing back. What assets do I have overseas? If I maintain them, are there tax implications with the ATO? Are there tax implications with the local, I suppose, taxation authority? If I've been overseas for such a long period and I've got all these assets, it might even be cash savings. Well, start looking at methods and ways that you can transfer that back, you know, whether it's using a currency platform, um, you know, sending back a bit of capital to your Australian bank account. Is it a case where, you, you know, you haven't lodged a tax return for 10 years and you're going to bounce back and you're going to get a funny letter from the ATO saying, where you been? Um, so having a chat maybe to an accountant, uh, seeing where you, you sit with Medicare. Have you got an, an old card that's expired? Should you be contacting Medicare to get that up and running? Um, but I suppose the biggest thing that comes about is any assets that we've accumulated overseas, okay, what's happening with them when we come back? Should we be looking at transitioning some back, selling some down? Uh, those are the main items that we usually focus on with repatriation, you know, having a review of your worldwide assets, looking at what you've got, what might need to stay in that country because of the sort of, I suppose, drawdown rules, maybe at retirement accounts, if you're going to hold property. What does that mean from a capital gains tax point of view? It goes on. Yeah. So a friend of mine just moved back from the uh, from the UK and it was during COVID on one of the repatriation flights, which kind of they were out, wanted to leave anyway. And, you know, they could have a couple hundred thousand pounds um, of profit, Um because they'd lived there over 10 years and bought a house. What, like, is, what's the kind of best way to bring that money down? Yeah, uh, so- Is there like question. a wholesale FX desk that can do it without getting shafted? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or do you transfer it via Bitcoin? It's uh, <laughs> a good question. No, a lot of the time, always best to use a currency platform. Don't use bank to bank because the, the banks will smash you on the, um, the FX rates. It's ridiculous. Common providers out there right now, you know, TransferWise, OFX, World First is big in the UK. Mm. Um, they're some of your, your okay providers. Uh, usually you'll get a, a pretty similar almost market rate. Mm. Sometimes if you're using a, you know, a friend's sort of referral code, you might knock off the international transaction fee or something like that. Um, but it's best to use those kind of means or platforms to bring it home. One other consideration just re- regarding the repatriation side is, remember, when you bounce back to Australia, usually the day that you return, that's when your Australian tax residency is resuming. So if you're holding foreign assets, 
as an example, holding a few hundred thousand pounds, the day that you return, technically that's the cost base in which you've purchased that foreign currency for Australian mm. tax purposes. Mm. So you'll need to take note of what the exchange rate was on that day. If you bring it back in a few months' time, then you actually might make a currency loss, and that's okay. If you make a currency gain, that's annoying, but it's not going to be ideally that large. But those are little things you need to bear in mind as well because it's now still something you should be declaring to the ATO because you're a normal Australian mm. tax resident again. And I kind of said to him, he's like, oh, how do I bring that much home? I'm like, well, yeah, don't use a bank. And, you know, with the currency risk, if it's not that urgent, maybe just split it up over four months. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So currency risk in that scenario, breaking up in tranches, yeah. you, know, you know, getting a bit of dollar cost averaging going. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it just speaks to every person's situation is so different. And if you do want to reach out to James, um, you can go to sawyourmoneyout.com, click get help. Uh, just put in the free text that you heard this episode and you're an expat uh, repatriating or you're interested in going overseas. But I will say, you know, you need to pay for advice. So there could be costs involved and I'm certainly not scared to pay a couple hundred dollars for some advice uh, because it could save you thousands of effing dollars. <laughs> so like, um, you know, you'll, you'll spend two grand or five grand on plane tickets to move overseas, but you won't spend $300 for a bit of a consult to get your freaking affairs in order. Pay for bloody advice and look after yourself. So that's all I would say. If you, if you don't want to reach out and look, if you are moving to the Middle East or if you are in Singapore, Brett, uh, James's colleague is based um, in uh, Dubai and I'm sure he's enjoying a beautiful tax haven. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, we can't speak on behalf of anyone else's tax fares. But um, I just want to thank you, James, for giving us an hour of your time. Uh, it's certainly been such a great in-depth episode. We will get you back. And, um, yeah, at least Atlas is a trusted source for any M3ers all over the world. But, again, you, you know, we're not some frugal friends whatever it is facebook group where we put everything for free it's like no if you want real advice you'll pay for it and um the team they won't you know you won't get ambushed with different fees jump in get connected to james i'm sure he'll have a quick 10 minute chat and just point you in the right direction if there is going to be a fee he'll let you know so you're in really safe hands so thank you james thanks glenn thanks for having me on no worries i'll see you soon sounds good man bye We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.